listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number eight in the series. Today's episode is titled, Finding Achilles. So welcome back to episode number eight of Trojan War, the podcast. Now, if you'll recall at the end of episode number seven, Agamemnon, king of kings, with his invasion fleet set ready to sail to Troy, was missing two warlords. He was missing the warlord Odysseus, and he was missing the warlord Achilles. Clearly, he needed Odysseus for Odysseus's brains. Odysseus was well regarded as the brightest, most clever of the Greeks, and Agamemnon wanted a man like that by his side throughout the entire operation. But he was also missing Achilles, the greatest and most formidable of the Greek soldiers, Greece's own weapon of mass destruction, if you will. So this episode is going to focus on the challenge of finding the elusive Achilles. Now, Agamemnon worried. He he had his fleet assembled. He had his 100,000 men-at-arms ready at the port of Aulis, ready to sail. The, the thousand boats had been built, and well, holding together a coalition army is no easy thing, and Agamemnon recognized that the longer he delayed departure for Troy, the, the more risk there was of something going terribly wrong with the coalition army and the whole thing falling apart. Agamemnon was also looking at the time of year. It was it was getting into late summer, and the autumn or the even more dangerous winter storms in the Mediterranean would have made uh, launching a fleet of the size that Agamemnon was planning on launching completely impossible. So there was a risk that if Operation Trojan Storm didn't get off the ground in very short order in the next few weeks, then it might be delayed six months. And well, with delays like that, Agamemnon feared it might not happen at all. So Agamemnon had actually called Odysseus into his tent and, and inquired of Odysseus. He had said, do we really need Achilles on this expedition? I, I mean, after all, Odysseus, I, I have 100,000 men-at-arms. Uh, uh, Priam can put 75,000 soldiers into the field. We should be able to go it alone. We don't really need Odysseus. Uh, we don't really need Achilles. Let's, uh, let's just set sail and get this over with and not worry about this kid. And Odysseus... Um, a lot more wily and clever than Agamemnon could ever hope or dream of being, had adamantly refused. He had gone on to explain that it wasn't just Achilles's role as a splendid and glorious fighter. It was, it was the idea of Achilles, the sheer majesty and terror that that Achilles's very name it sort of brought wherever he went. And, and and Odysseus went on to explain to Agamemnon that a lot of warfare is psychological. And it wasn't just a matter of numbers. It was a, it was a matter of the Greek soldiers believing that they were invincible. And, and as Odysseus said, you know, even if Achilles is just sitting in his tent, Agamemnon, not even fighting, well, the Trojans will always venture outside of their walls of the city to fight with with one eye looking forward toward the Greek ranks, but a, another eye looking back towards the safety of their walls with fear that if Achilles enters the fray, they will all die for sure. So Odysseus had made it very clear that without Achilles in the company of Operation Trojan Storm, Odysseus had no interest in venturing across the Aegean Sea himself. 
So Agamemnon had sighed and explained that he had sent every messenger, spy, and herald he could throughout all of Greece, through the mainland, through all of the islands, and there was no sign of Odysseus or of Achilles anywhere. And, and what did Odysseus think that he could do? And Odysseus had said, give me 10 days, Agamemnon, and, and if I haven't found him, then we'll reconsider, and if we have to, we'll consider going without him, but give me 10 days. And Agamemnon had agreed to the 10 days, asked Odysseus if he if he wanted a contingent of bronze-armed soldiers to protect him as he as he went hunting for Achilles, and Odysseus had laughed and pointed out that Achilles clearly didn't want to be found, and the only way they were going to find Achilles was through stealth and, and, and secrecy and catching up on him by surprise, and if Odysseus headed off with a heavily armed contingent of soldiers, well, so much for the stealth and the surprise element. So Odysseus said, I will travel alone, but I would like to bring one one additional traveling companion with me. And Odysseus had requested that the warlord Ajax accompany Odysseus on his search for the elusive Achilles. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment and just give you a brief picture of who this Ajax was, because Ajax is an absolutely critical warlord to future episodes of our story. Ajax was, well, with the exception of Achilles, by far and away, the acknowledged most wonderful, superior, and skilled fighter in the entire Greek world. Uh, Ajax was a physical man-mountain of a soldier. He, he he towered well beyond even the height of Achilles. He, he, he was undefeated. Nobody had ever beat Ajax in any form of battle whatsoever. And, and Ajax, the story said, and the stories were backed up by eyewitness accounts, had, had, had readily and easily taken on five, 10, 15 enemy soldiers in various campaigns and routed them all single-handed. He, he was a formidable foe in the battlefield. And, and well, that was one reason why Odysseus thought he'd be a great traveling companion if Odysseus ran into any troubles. And, well, having Ajax having your back wasn't going to be a bad thing to have. But there was much more to it than that. Odysseus had done his research and recognized that back in Achilles' formative years, back when Achilles' parents had sent him off to Centaur Boarding School, where he had been mentored by the Centaur Chiron, well, the boarding school, the other chief warlord's son who had attended the boarding school during Achilles' tenure there had been the warlord Ajax, a teenager at the time. Achilles and Ajax were contemporaries. They were the same age. They'd grown up together. They'd trained together. They'd been educated together. They had boarded together for years. They were best friends, and and they had a deep and abiding respect for each other. And Odysseus thought, I don't know what I'm going to find when I find Achilles. He's a lot younger man than me. I don't know his motivations or reasons for not being at this particular war. And it's likely best that I bring along a close military companion of Achilles is to, to ease over any awkwardness or difficulties if I ever even do find the elusive Achilles. So Ajax had been happy to come along. He was, he was eager for an adventure and he was tired of sitting on the beach and waiting for the fleet to sail. Well, of course, before they could sail, there was a problem of where to go looking. Greece is not a huge peninsula, but it's a large enough peninsula, and there there were literally hundreds of islands surrounding it, and Achilles could have theoretically been anywhere. That They had 10 days to try to find him, so Odysseus knew there was no point departing until he had a well-thought-out plan. So Odysseus had retired to his tent for the evening for a good, long think. And so, ladies and gentlemen, where was Achilles. Well, I'm going to let you in on precisely where Achilles was, and then we can have the pleasure of watching Odysseus try to figure it out and discover it for himself uh, sort of later in the episode. So if you recall back 
to episode number three of this series, an episode I titled The Birth of Achilles. I, you, you'll recall that Achilles was born. Uh, his mother was the immortal sea nymph, Thetis. His father was the human warlord, the King Peleus. And, and you'll recall that from the moment that Achilles had been born, his mother Thetis had been worried and, and stressed about her, her son's health, her well, his well-being and his safety. She had, she had heard these two dire prophecies about Achilles, and, and the two prophecies had essentially dictated Thetis' entire course of her life as a mother ever since. And just to remind you of the prophecies, one, one of the prophecies said that Achilles would, would grow up and lead a long, quiet, tedious, boring life, and, and, uh, and nobody would know his name. Nothing exciting or wonderful or heroic would ever happen to him. And, and then he would quietly and peacefully die of old age sometime in his 80s. And that, that was the one possible fate that her son Achilles was destined to fulfill. But the other fate was that Achilles would be the most glorious warlord in the entire history of the planet would have heroic, wonderful military exploits and, and adventures. And the entire world would, would know the stories of Achilles and they'd sing his songs down through the ages. And in exchange for all of that glory, Achilles would be dead in his youth. Well, the prophecies had been vague on which of the two routes Achilles would choose. And it was also vague on whether Achilles was even going to get to select from the two destinies. But Thetis had made it her life's work from the moment of hearing the prophecies to protect her son, her mortal son, from the early death at any cost. So you'll recall she had brought the baby to the river Styx and, and dipped him into the waters to protect him from, from harm and, and, and the fear that if he did end up off at war, well, at least no weapon could possibly damage him. And then as Achilles had grown up, Thetis had doted on her son, yeah, keeping a careful eye on everything he did, and and worrying about the day when her son, who was growing up to be an absolutely splendid and magnificent soldier, who apparently could not be harmed by any weapon, would would want to head off and, and and find a stage suitable to exhibit his mastery of all things military. And so Thetis had kept a her ears, I guess, close to the ground, particularly when Achilles had entered his mid-teen years, and and Thetis was keeping her ears open for any stories, any hint of any sort of world human event which might present an attractive and large enough stage for Achilles, history's greatest killing machine, to to make his debut. And and, and Thetis thought, if I, if I can hear about any sort of a, a human event which might attract my son Achilles, then maybe I can preemptively keep him away from that event. So, so Thetis kept her ears to the ground, and more importantly, Thetis kept her contacts and, and her information lines open up on Mount Olympus. And Eventually, the day came when one of the gods up on Mount Olympus uh, let Thetis know that a, a war was brewing between the Greeks and the Trojans, and it, it was going to be a war of epically large scale. And and so Thetis got this information well before any human beings got the information, and, and just in the way that the deities and fates worked up on Mount Olympus in the universe, Thetis might have got the information of the war before Agamemnon had even conceived of the war. That was possible. So Thetis at that point had realized that this will be the stage which my my 18-year-old son Achilles will, will be looking to. And if he hears about this war between the Greeks and the Trojans, he will be off to Agamemnon's invasion fleet at Aulis, hoping to take center stage in the entire glorious expedition. Well, not if I have any control over Thetis had thought, and she had put her plan into effect. She had waited till Achilles was lying in his bed one night, 18 years old, and you've got to imagine the 18-year-old Achilles by this stage in his life. He, like any 18-year-old boy, he was, he was thirsting to get out of the house, thirsting for adventure, thirsting for independence, thirsting to define himself as an individual on the world stage. And, but it was worse for Achilles because 
his destiny was as, he knew his destiny was as a glorious warrior. And there was only so much you could do by way of practice battles and training and hunts and things like that at his father Peleus' estate. And Achilles was, by the time he was 18, lying in bed every night, very conscious of the two prophecies about his life. His, his mom had filled him in on these prophecies every day as long as he could remember it. And Achilles was genuinely, by 18 years old, convinced that he was going to fulfill the former prophecy. He was going to lead a quiet, long, boring life. He was going to rust unburnished on the world stage. And Achilles dreaded that more than anything. And so when Thetis stepped into his room on his in his 18th year and, and, and turned to Achilles, she knew that she had to convince him somehow to keep from going to Troy. So, so Thetis did what mothers have been doing since the dawn of recorded stories and right up to the 21st century. Thetis stepped into the room of her young 18-year-old son and Thetis piled on the mother guilt. Thetis alternately asked Achilles, Achilles, do you love me? Achilles, have I always, have I always given you the best of everything? Achilles, have I ever asked anything of you? Achilles, are you not, are you not my only most cherished son? And, and, and befuddled and bemused Achilles, Thetis had never behaved like this before. It had, had assured his mother that yes, uh, Thetis had always loved him, that yes, Thetis had always given him the best of everything, that yes, Thetis was a wonderful mom. And, and, and when Thetis had piled it on even further through tears and said, but do you love me, Achilles? Do, will you listen to me, Achilles? I, will you listen? to me, Achilles, are you my son? And Achilles had said, of course, mother, I will listen to you. What is it you need, mother? And, and, and poor Achilles was overwhelmed by Thetis's mother love act. And, and once Thetis thought she had reached it to a fever pitch of crying and worrying and guilting Achilles about every little incident in his entire life where Thetis had sprung to Achilles' rescue and every time Thetis had done something special for his son. And once Achilles was feeling that he owed his mother everything in the entire universe and, and, and frankly just wanted her to leave the room because the crying was getting embarrassing, Thetis had sprung her trap. She had turned around and she said, Achilles, have I ever asked you for anything before? And Achilles had said, no, mother, you haven't. And Thetis said, Achilles, I'm going to ask you for something now. And Achilles, I need you to promise me that whatever I ask you, you, you will... You will say yes to what I ask you, and, and then not only will you say yes, but you will swear on Father Zeus himself that you will not change your mind afterwards. Well, Achilles was a very bright and intelligent, well-rounded young man, and he certainly, well, his spidey senses must have been tingling at that point. He must have recognized that he was he was being set up by his mother for something which he was clearly not going to want to be a part of, but... Achilles wasn't the first or the last 18-year-old boy in in, the, in history who had turned into quivering, controlled jelly in, in the face of overwhelming mother guilt. So Achilles had, in spite of his better judgment, turned around and said, yes, mother, I promise, whatever you ask, I will do it, and I will keep my promise, I swear on Father Zeus himself. And the moment he said it, of course, at Thetis, had what she needed, and she was all action then. No more crying, no more guilting, no more tears. And Achilles, within an, an hour of the promise, had found himself bundled up on a fast boat, and he and mother were leaving Peleus's kingdom and, and heading into the far northwestern reaches of Greece, off to the most remote island, an island so remote that it really barely qualified as part of the entire Greek world at all, a tiny little rock of an island, a place called Skyros. And, and Thetis was on the boat, Achilles was on the boat, and that was it. It was the two of them. 
They sailed, they sailed across the sea. They landed at the island of Skyros. Uh, Achilles turned around. His mother hadn't explained what he was doing there. And they landed on this little rock of an island. Uh, there was clearly a palace up top. Uh, Thetis took Achilles up to the top of the palace. She, she quietly and, and briskly, without so much as a buy your leave, ushered Achilles of all places into the ladies' quarters, said, you stay here, you sit still, you wait for mother, you promised, you swore on Zeus himself. And then Thetis had stepped into the throne room and approached the king. Well, the king of Skyros was an ancient widower, a, a, a king named Lycomedes, and he lived alone on his very humble little Greek kingdom. Skyros was was part of the Greek world, but so far off the beaten path that very, very few people ever came to Skyros. It was it wasn't part of the the social or the cultural mainstream of Greek society, and 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 because Lycomedes the king had no sons, only daughters. And because Lycomedes the king was was an aging old man, then he wasn't involved in world affairs. He certainly hadn't been invited uh, to join the Greek fleet at Troy. He was from a generation before this particular time. And and, and so Lycomedes was left pretty well alone to, to try to raise three teenage daughters on this tiny little rock of a kingdom himself. And and the place was comfortable and warm enough, but it was certainly it was certainly part of the Greek backwater, and there was no other way to explain it. Well, Thetis had stepped into Lycomedes' throne room, turned around, introduced herself, explained that she was Thetis the sea nymph, and that she'd come to Lycomedes with with a request, and she laid out a request. And the request was very simple, and it was very plain. She she wanted Lycomedes to accommodate her eighteen year old son Achilles in Lycomedes Palace for an entire calendar year. Uh, Thetis had reasoned that the war against Troy would be over much before then, and if Achilles was at Lycomedes Palace, he, he, he wouldn't even catch wind that there was a Greek war against Troy. It was the safest place to place him. But on top of that, Thetis went on and she said, and just for extra safety, I insist that my 18-year-old son Achilles be accommodated in the ladies' quarters of the palace, out of sight, sequestered from all the men. I don't want anybody seeing Achilles. Well, Lycomedes had, had, had asked a few questions. He said, you're wanting your 18-year-old son to, to, to live in the ladies' quarters with my three teenage daughters? I, that will not end well. And, and, and Thetis had, at that point, turned around. And as it looked as though Lycomedes was going to protest, Thetis's eyes had, had glared in a particular deific fashion, which she as a demigoddess had mastered. And Thetis had turned to Lycomedes and explained that she was on a personal first name friendly basis with Zeus, king of the gods himself, and that if Lycomedes hoped that his kingdom and his children would live, then he would assent to Thetis's request, or that would be the last no he ever gave to any god or demigod ever. Well, Lycomedes realized that he had no choice, and he asked Thetis to explain the terms, and she said that Achilles can have the run of the island. He doesn't, he doesn't have to stay in the ladies' quarters because the harbor is very, very clear to see from a distance. But if anybody, anybody lands at the harbor of Skyros and attempts to come up to the palace, then Achilles must automatically return to the ladies' quarters, and just to be very safe, Achilles must be dressed up as a woman until the stranger leaves. Uh, Lycomedes had, had asked if Thetis had cleared this with her son. He he didn't look like the sort of boy who would be comfortable uh, cross-dressing, and Thetis said that it was fine with Achilles. Uh, he had a reason for doing it, and that was his reason and Thetis's reason and none of Lycomedes's business. Well, Lycomedes had agreed, 
Thetis had stepped into the ladies' quarters, taken a quick look at Achilles, um, appraised him, said that well in the dress with right rouge makeup and wig, he 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 could pass if if needs be in the case of an emergency where he had to leave the ladies' quarters. He, he could pass as a as a woman from a distance at least. And then Thetis had uh, bated goodbye to her son Achilles and said, "I will see you again when I come to pick you up in a year." And Achilles was left all alone on a remote little rock in the Western Mediterranean, completely ignorant of, of the glorious events and the, and the world stage that was developing down in the mainland of Greece as Agamemnon marshaled a, a fleet of 100,000 soldiers and 1,000 boats to sail across for glory on the shores of Troy. And Achilles would have stayed on Skyros and, and missed Agamemnon's departure for the war completely, had it not been that Agamemnon had placed his best man, Odysseus, on the case of finding the elusive Achilles. Well, Odysseus sat up all night inside of his tent on the, on the Bay of Aulis, engaged in his big think. He, he realized that he had 10 days to find Achilles, and well, if messengers and spies and heralds hadn't been able to find Achilles, then Clearly, there was no point just wandering around randomly in Greece and all of its attended islands, hoping that you might actually find the guy. Odysseus knew he needed a plan and it had to be efficient. So he went back to first principles and tried to reason through where Achilles might be and why he might be where he was. So the first question that Odysseus confronted was a question of, is Achilles voluntarily absenting himself from the Greek fleet or is Achilles away from the Greek fleet against his will by some form of coercion? And Odysseus thought on that for a moment, and he, he recognized that he was quite convinced that Achilles wanted to be with the army. Odysseus knew he didn't want to be with the army, but Odysseus recognized that he was a middle-aged man with a beautiful young wife, a, a newborn heir to the throne in a thriving kingdom. Odysseus was happy to settle down into comfortable middle age and enjoy the fruits of his, of, of his teenage and youth labors, but he knew that Achilles was 18 years old. He knew that Achilles was, was Greece's greatest warrior, and he knew that Achilles had not had an opportunity to do anything exciting or glorious in his life. So Achilles clearly would want to be on this mission if Achilles had any say on it. So Odysseus rightly reasoned that Achilles was being held against his will from reporting to Agamemnon's glorious Trojan storm operation. So then the question was, how was Achilles being held against his will? And, and there were only two ways to this. It was binary, Odysseus realized. Achilles was either being held by force or he was being held by some other form of coercion. Well, Odysseus knew that force was out of the question. There was no force on the planet powerful enough to keep history's greatest and incidentally most immune from harm warrior away from a place he wanted to be if it was only a matter of force. So Achilles clearly wasn't bound and gagged and, and chained in some dungeon someplace. That was that was an impossibility. So so obviously if Achilles was being coerced away from the Trojan fleet as it, or the Greek fleet as it assembled, it, it was through some other form of coercion. And that left only one of two things if you were an 18-year-old boy. Odysseus realized either Achilles is in love and so he doesn't want to leave some sweetheart behind or more likely his mother. And of course, the stories of Achilles' mother and her controlling of her son and all the way back to the River Styx story and, and, and then hiring the very best centaur as a mentor. Well, everybody knew all the stories. So Odysseus reviewed the facts of the case and all the rumors he had heard. And, and there was no suggestion that Achilles was prone to falling in love with some sweetheart. In fact, any of the rumors about Achilles suggested he, he, he might actually be prone in directions completely different than that altogether. So that only left one possible option. And, and, and that was that mother had somehow coerced Achilles 
away from reporting to the Greek fleet as it assembled at the port of Aulis. And, and it was consistent with everything else mother had done so far to protect her son. So Odysseus thought, okay, Thetis, the sea nymph, has control of Achilles and has somehow got him entrapped in some sort of a fashion that he can't report and join the army. So then it was a question of where had Thetis hidden the boy? Well, Odysseus thought that through and recognized that there were only so many ways that you could hide history's most glorious and, and gorgeous warrior before somebody would clearly recognize Achilles. And, well, one possibility Odysseus considered is that Thetis had blended him in with the common folk and that Odysseus was spending uh, spending his time laboring away in a mine someplace with, with, with huge, buff, hearty slaves or that he was off in a fishing boat or that he, he was working with farmers in a field. But Odysseus had heard enough stories about the young Achilles and the young Achilles' considerable ego that he recognized that Achilles would not have deigned to live a life of a commoner if there's any possible way of avoiding it. And and further, Thetis wouldn't have accepted this for her son. Thetis considered her son, well, the gods' gift to, to, the, to the Greek world. And so the idea of Achilles not living in a palace up to the luxury to which he had become accustomed and, and deserved, well, Odysseus thought that was a little bit far-fetched to know to the question. And that consequently meant that Thetis was hiding Achilles someplace in some palace where the creature comforts would be there for Achilles and he would be recognized as royalty. And well, that meant he was in a palace someplace, but Odysseus recognized that doesn't really narrow down the search too much. There were, there were well over 50 warlords' palaces across mainland Greece, and those are only the guys that have reported for Operation Trojan Storm. But as Odysseus thought it through, he recognized that most of those palaces were hubs of social activity. They were they were places which were engaged in constant trade and, and communication and, and and social commerce with, with with other of the Greek kingdoms. And hiding Achilles in a place where there was constant coming and goings of people from all over Greece, well, inevitably somebody would slip and he would have been found out. Which which meant that Achilles needed to be in a very very remote kingdom, someplace way off the beaten path. And as, as Odysseus sat down and reviewed his charts and his maps, he recognized that this narrowed it down to about four or five or possibly six different kingdoms that were so far off the beaten track of, of mainland Greece, uh, social, political commerce. And well, you could actually hide somebody there and it could be a long time till a stranger from out of town actually showed up and recognized the guy. But, but even then, Odysseus thought, there are going to be times when when people drop into even the most remote of kingdoms, and how do you hide an Achilles then? He, you'd have to sequester him someplace that he couldn't be seen, and and that's of course when on the word sequester that Odysseus had burst into a huge grin and recognized what Thetis, the sea nymph, had likely done with her son. And at that point, Odysseus had, had gone rushing off to the tent of Ajax and said, "Ajax, pack your bags. I know where we're going. I know where we're going to find Achilles. And when we when we find him, Ajax, I promise you that you are going to have." the laugh of your very life. So the two of them had hopped onto a fast boat and Odysseus and Ajax had, had headed off on Odysseus's mission of finding Achilles. When they got onto the boat, Ajax had made inquiries and Odysseus had filled them in that it had to be an island kingdom. It had to be a remote island kingdom. And once they got to that island kingdom, they wouldn't clearly find Achilles right away because he'd be hidden, Odysseus was convinced, sequestered, in the ladies' quarters of the palace. 
We will have to somehow rat him out, find him out, ferret him out of the ladies' quarters, Odysseus said, and then we will find our Achilles. And, and Ajax, if, if I figured out what's going to happen here, this is going to be fun. You are thoroughly going to enjoy this. You are going to see your friend as he certainly will not want to be seen. Well, the, the two warriors, Ajax and Odysseus, headed off and and two days later, they arrived at the first of the uh, the possible refuges or havens where the Achilles was hidden out. And they put their sting operation into effect. And it came up empty. There was clearly no Achilles on that island. So, so they headed to the second island uh, two days later and again put the same sting operation into effect. But they had polished the operation a little bit. Uh, in a way, it was kind of good. It gave them a chance to work out some of the kinks. But, uh, but, but again, no Achilles. But by the time they got to the third island, the island of Skyros... Well, Ajax and Odysseus had worked out their sting routine perfectly, and of course, that was the island where they were going to trap the Achilles and reveal the Achilles hiding as a woman in the women's quarters of the palace. Here's how the whole thing went down. Odysseus and Ajax arrived off the shore of the island of Skyros in their boat. They they parked and anchored their boat in a bay well away from the main harbour of Skyros where they couldn't be seen. And then they prepared a small little craft, which they were going to use to actually row into the harbor. When the small little craft was prepared and ready to ready to weigh anchor and leave from the main boat, uh, Odysseus had assumed his disguise. Uh, Odysseus had managed to, through a wig, some old rags, and primarily a change in voice and his gait and mannerisms, Odysseus managed to transform himself from a Greek warlord into the most humble of peddlers or traveling salesmen. Now, folks, just to give you a sense of what a peddler or a traveling salesman was in the Bronze Age world, you've got to understand that back in 1250 BCE, if you wanted any form of trade good that wasn't produced within about a 50-mile radius of your of your own kingdom, then, well, there was no way of getting it without traveling peddlers or salesmen. It wasn't as though you could pop in the car and head over to Walmart or sit at, sit at the desk and, and check out how Amazon could get you the, the exotic goods of the planet. You... You had to wait for traveling peddlers. And, the, and and these peddlers were, well, they were all over the Bronze Age world out of necessity. And what they would do is they would spend years of their life traveling across the entire Mediterranean basin, going to all the major cultural ports of trade across the Mediterranean. So uh, they would go to Crete, they would go to Egypt, they they would go to Troy, they they would go to they they would go to to where Rome was going to be someday. They they would go everywhere and everywhere they would land uh, these peddlers would would buy low uh, the local merchandise which was obviously very easy and and available in that particular kingdom and and then put it into their sack and bring it someplace else and sell it high. Someplace where where the trade good was exotic and hard to get. So, so a typical peddler would travel from kingdom to kingdom in Greece, and, and when he arrived at a kingdom, he would spread out his wares, and, and the wares were really the only opportunity for, well, home shopping or any form of shopping at all that, that, that the ladies of the kingdom would ever possibly have. Uh, this was it. This was the only way that you could possibly get uh, fine, luxurious silks or linens or clothing or fashions that weren't produced within, uh, as I said, 100 miles of your house. This was the only place where you could get exotic perfumes from the Far East. Uh, silks from the very, very far east, uh, the, the most glorious of Minoan jewelry. Uh, you, you, these peddlers were very, very popular because when they when they showed up, they were the only shopping opportunity that that the daughters and the queens of warlords ever, ever got. And, and a peddler might show up at a really remote place like Skyros only maybe once every one to two years. 
So Odysseus had disguised himself as a peddler. He had a huge sack of, of, of trade goods, beautiful things that, that young women, princesses and queens would find attractive. And, and he loaded his sack of trade goods onto his little boat. He hopped in disguised as a peddler and, and Ajax didn't worry about a disguise at all. All Ajax did was strip off all of his armor, put it into a bag and, and, and sat down beside Odysseus. And the two of them rowed uh, to the port of Skyros and their humble little craft. When they landed, they looked like a, a traveling peddler accompanied by a rather large and healthy and buff-looking bodyguard to make sure that nobody tried to steal the peddler's merchandise. And, and the two of them made their way up to the palace at Skyros. Well, when they got to the to the gates of the palace, and this was a small palace in a very remote location, so there, there was nothing by way of, of, of a full contingent of guards at this palace. It, Skyros relied most of the time on its safety for the fact that it was entirely irrelevant and not really worth anybody's major amount of trouble to invade. Well, so when they got to the major gates of, of Skyros, uh, Odysseus essentially wandered right in disguised as a peddler and began to bellow in an exciting, exceedingly loud and theatrical and dramatic voice, which he he hoped and knew needed to carry all the way to the ladies' quarters of the palace. Odysseus began to bellow out that he was a traveling peddler and he had exotic wares and, and wonderful things from, from Egypt and from the Far East and from the Middle East and, and from Minoan civilization and that they were all available on display and that if there were any princesses or queens in this palace and they would certainly want to come out and see the wonderful, wonderful goods that the peddler had brought. And Odysseus yelled and bellowed out his wares and, and, and his trades and the wonderful goods for a full five minutes. So everybody inside of that palace had heard his sales pitch. Meanwhile, Ajax had sequestered himself outside of the gates of the palace, found a, a quiet little alcove behind, a, behind an olive tree and had switched into his full battle armor and then sat there waiting for the prearranged signal, which would soon be coming, he hoped, from Odysseus. Well, when Odysseus stepped into the palace disguised as a peddler and, and announced all these wonderful trade goods that he had, you, you can you can only imagine the scene in the ladies' quarters of the palace. There were three teenage princesses in that palace, and those three teenage princesses in the, in the ladies' quarters had not seen a luxury or a trade good come into Skyros in well over a year and a half. Can you imagine a year and a half without ever being able to go shopping with the same clothes, with the same trade goods, with nothing new at all? Well, that, well, that was that was the status of these girls. And so when they heard of just outside the ladies' quarters that a peddler was setting up a trestle table with all these exotic wares, well, the girls began to protest and scream and, and, and beg to their father, Lycomedes and say, Lycomedes, father, dad, you, you have to let us out. You, you, you have to let us look at these wonderful goods. Please, father, please. And, and the poor befuddled widower of a king recognized that his daughters had, his daughters had not had an opportunity to be treated to something special in such a very long time. And, and but he worried. He thought, there's the 18 year old Achilles in, inside of the, in, inside of the ladies' quarters. And, and if, Everybody now knows that I have mysteriously got a, a fourth princess as a daughter. I, I can't afford to leave one of the princesses behind. The rest of the palace will talk and, and wonder why isn't she there. So Lycomedes had, had done what he thought was best under the pressure of his daughters and, and, and trying to be true to the promise he'd made to Thetis. And he had turned knowingly to his daughters, walked into the ladies' quarters, uh, confronted the three screaming teenagers, then turned to Achilles and said, you may go out, you may look at the goods. It's only a humble peddler. There's nobody else with him. He, he looks half blind anyway. But the four of you must go out, and that means, Achilles, you must be dressed. 
You must look like a woman. You must go to the table. You must select a trade good too. I don't want people talking and wondering why, why the eldest and largest of my daughters isn't interested in silks or, or jewelry or perfume. So, so the three teenage daughters, desperate to get out there, had, had dressed up Achilles. They'd put him into rouge, makeup, um, lipstick, a very attractive wig, and a very sensible looking dress. And, and then five minutes later, as Achilles exited with the three enthusiastic teenage daughters. He, he spotted across the hall a, a humble old half-blind peddler who had laid out all of his trade wares on a huge trestle table in the great hall of the palace. And there was a lot of really, really nice stuff there, but spread out amongst the goods and sort of off to one side and half-concealed under a bolt of purple silk was, well, was the trap that Odysseus, the peddler in disguise, was hoping to set for what he thought was likely a princess in disguise in the form of Achilles. And, and that trap was actually an absolutely magnificent sword. And Odysseus, the peddler, had laid the sword onto the trestle table, half covered in the bolt of silk, but there was more than enough of the sword showing that, well, anybody who recognized weaponry would have recognized that this was not a run-of-the-mill sword, but actually a rather spectacular, rare, and, and, and particularly uh, stunning piece of military hardware. There was a story behind the sword, actually. Odysseus, when he had figured out his plan and figured out where he thought uh, Achilles might be hiding, had actually gone personally back to Agamemnon and, and said to Agamemnon, I, I need something special. I, I need bait Agamemnon to, to, to lure out the Achilles. And Agamemnon had said anything, and Odysseus had turned around and pointed to Agamemnon's own sword and said, that's what I need. That's what I need, Agamemnon. I need your sword. And Agamemnon protested it. The sword was 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 a brilliant piece of military craftsmanship. It had been in the family for a few generations. And, well, Agamemnon was loath to depart with it, but Odysseus said it's, it's a price of getting the Achilles. And Agamemnon had unbelted the sword from his waist, turned it over, and, and said, well, anything to get Achilles into the army, and grudgingly handed over the, the beautiful sword to Odysseus. And now that sword was sitting on the trestle table, just a little bit down into the side from the beautiful, well, if you will, female trade goods on display. Well, as the peddler, Odysseus, stepped back from the scene and watched, three of the four princesses charged at, at the table of, of beautiful luxury trade goods and, and began to paw through them with screams of giddy delight and enthusiasm. It was, it was amazing. They were thrilled. And, and, and the poor king, the poor befuddled king, turned around and yelled out to his daughters that they could only have three items each. He, he said, I can't afford to bankrupt the treasury in one visit from a peddler. And, and then as the king watched he motioned to his eldest daughter, the, the fourth daughter, the rather husky daughter, and said, you too, you can choose something too, daughter. And and Achilles, recognizing that he had made a promise to his mom and, and that he really honestly didn't want to ruin the fun for the three other princesses, had grudgingly and reluctantly stepped forward and, and, and pretended to show some sort of an interest in, in goods, which clearly, clearly didn't interest him at all. And, and that is when, of course, Achilles had spotted Agamemnon's sword. Well, the moment that Achilles saw the, the, the sword, he, he had been skilled and trained by Chiron in military weapons, and Achilles recognized that he was looking at uh, not a run-of-the-mill sword, but something unique, exceptional, and, and, and beautiful, and, and also a masterpiece of military hardware and engineering. And, and Achilles' eyes were, were just riveted to the sword. He, 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 he looked briefly up with confusion to the old half-blind peddler and wondered, how did a peddler come across something like this? This, this is worth more than everything else in the peddler's combined trade goods combined. I wonder if he recognizes it. And Achilles so desperately wanted to pick up that sword and wield it. And more than that, he wanted to choose it as his gift. But Achilles also knew that the minute he touched that sword or made inquiries into it, well, he'd give himself away because no girl 
in the Bronze Age, in this highly patriarchal world, would have had the first clue or interest in anything to do with military equipment. And and so Achilles, his eyes still gazing longingly on the sword, had had, had moved away from it a little bit down the table and is feigning some interest in, in, in of all things, perfume. And, and that's, of course, all the evidence that Odysseus, the blind peddler, needed. He he looked into the eyes of, of the rather husky and butch princess and recognized that uh, that was no girl. That was that was Achilles in a dress. And, and obviously the way that the rather husky and butch princess was looking at that sword gave everything away. Uh, so Odysseus knew it was time to spring his trap. Uh, the old peddler stepped forward towards his trestle table of goods and, and and then feigning the half blindness which he had he had he had deliberately faked that a, a clumsy sweeping of his arm which had knocked a huge round bronze serving dish off of the trestle table and onto the stone floor and and the bronze round serving dish when it had crashed to the stone floor had had rung and echoed and and then Odysseus the old blind peddler just to be sure that the ringing and the echoing was heard had had apologized stumbled over and accidentally kicked the round serving dish and had gone flying across the hall of the table crashing into a, a, a huge stone pillar and again there had been a huge bronze ringing and echoing throughout the great hall and that bronze ringing and echoing was the signal which Ajax, now sitting outside the doors of the palace in full battle armor, had, had been waiting for and hoping for. That was Ajax's cue. So the moment that Ajax heard the cue, Ajax put his end of the plane into effect. He, he, he ran down maybe 200 feet from the gates of the palace and, and then Ajax let out the most mighty bellow and war cry that that any warrior had ever delivered not in wartime. And and a moment later, in, in, an, in another voice, Ajax put on another voice, he, he, he screamed out in a booming voice towards the great hall, pirates, pirates, down in the harbor, pirates were under attack. And, and then Ajax had single-handedly, using his bronze arm, his shield, his sword, his armor, uh, anything that he could find nearby, had, had affected the sounds of a huge and violent military clash down by the shore in the sound. Of, of, of approaching marauders attacking the palace. And, and, and as Ajax clashed and clambered away outside and screamed and yelled about approaching pirates, well, of course, inside of the throne room, inside of the great hall, well, every one of Achilles's instincts that had been honed into him for 18 years went into action. A Achilles didn't think. Achilles acted. The way that Chiron had carefully trained Achilles to, to in moments of great crisis, to, to, to trust his body, to act on his instincts, to move instantly and quickly. And, and Achilles, recognizing that the palace, the old king and the three tainted daughters were under attack, hadn't thought for a moment. He had whipped off the wig, leapt forward, grabbed that glorious sword that was sitting on the table, raised it in the air, and, and charged outside of the great hall, ready to go down onto the beach, confront the entire ship full of pirates and single-handedly protect the teenage daughters and the old king of the island of Skyros. Well, Odysseus, the peddler, took that moment to step away from his wares, remove his wig, remove his old wags, straighten up, open his eyes to a full height, and, and suddenly as the old poor daughter and king of Skyros looked on, the, uh, the half-blind peddler looked much more like uh, the, the notable, glorious, and wise and clever warlord Odysseus, and, and the old king sighed and realized that something was afoot and something had gone terribly wrong, and that he suspected that the sea nymph Thetis was going to be very angry at him in a few moments. And, and indeed, two minutes after that, coming stumbling and laughing into the great hall, came the mighty warlord Ajax. And poor Ajax, uh, 
could not contain himself from laughing. There were tears in Ajax's eyes. He had, he had his huge brawny arm around Achilles and, and, and there was Achilles still dressed in, in a dress, uh, full makeup, rouge and lipstick on his face, holding this glorious sword. And, and Ajax just could not stop laughing at the sight of his dear friend and military companion since, since her teenage years, uh, Achilles in drag. And, and, and well, within a matter of three minutes of conversation, the, the whole story had been revealed to everybody and, and Achilles, as, as, as he removed the dress, as he put on something more sensible, uh, was filled in by Ajax and Odysseus on, on what their mission was and why they were there. And Achilles learned for the first time about this glorious war between Troy and Greece, which his mother Thetis had, had desperately been trying to keep him away from. And, and Ajax and Odysseus turned around and said, and Agamemnon, king of kings, wants you there. He wants you at the forefront of the army. Will you come, Achilles? Will you join this? Achilles, this is the greatest stage in history. Achilles, a hundred thousand men at arms. No, no army of this size has ever been marshaled. And Achilles turned around, of course, and said, yes, this is what I've been waiting for all my life. And then he remembered the, the promise he had made to his mother, the senior Thetis, and that there was another six to seven months left in that promise before he was going to be free to leave. And Achilles turned around and said, I can't go. I, I, I promised my mother I've Sworn to Father Zeus himself, I, I'm I'm stuck here in the ladies' quarters. Well, that was when Odysseus, the cleverest of men, had turned around to Achilles and said, "I I don't think you are Achilles. I think I think if you go to your mother and you you tell her the story I'm going to tell you, then your mother will immediately release you from your vow." And Odysseus explained that what he was going to do, what he and Ajax were going to do, if Achilles did not get permission to accompany them to Aulis and join the war, was he and Ajax were going to head back to Aulis and spread the story that Achilles knew all about the war and that Achilles, in spite of the fact he'd been training all of his life to be a glorious hero, was actually deep inside rather cowardly. And when push came to shove and when it was no longer uh, the practice battleground, but the real thing, Achilles just didn't have stomach for the fight. And so he had chosen to disguise himself as a woman and was living in the late quarters of the palace hoping to wait the whole thing out and be forgotten from history. Uh, well, Achilles, of course, had screamed and protested and said, that dishonors me. That uh, that story is not true and you know it. And Odysseus had smiled and said, Achilles, if you don't accompany us all the way back to Aulis and the beach, then whatever story I tell will be the truth and it'll be the only truth anybody knows. Now, Achilles and Odysseus said this with a smile and a wink. He said, you have ways of talking and, and talking to your mother. You you go tell her why you need to be released from the oath because you explain to her that your honor is at stake here. And I think your mother, the sea nymph, will believe that your honor is even more important than your safety. And Odysseus, of course, had done his research once again, and Odysseus was right. Achilles had excused himself. He had wandered down to the shores of the Mediterranean and in a strange relationship which Achilles had with his mother, the sea nymph, all that Achilles ever had to do was stand on the shores of the wine-dark sea and call out his mother's name. And, and Thetis was, was there instantly doting on her boy and asking what he needed. So Achilles had called out into the wine-dark sea and, and, and there was Thetis. She had arrived and she said, what is it, my son? It's early. The time isn't up. And Achilles had tearfully explained that he had done his honest best to keep his oath, but that he had been uncovered and his disguise had been revealed and he now knew about the war. And then he went on to explain what, what Odysseus and Ajax proposed to do if he didn't join the Greek fleet at Aulis and head to Troy and that he would be eternally shamed and that the stories would ring down through the ages of the glorious warrior who preferred to cross dress and hide in the ladies' quarters of a remote palace. And well, Thetis realized that she had been bested by Odysseus or by fate. And Thetis, knowing that if there was one thing that she did not want her son, even one thing more than his his death as a human being, it was 
his son to die without glory and honor. And so Thetis had sighed, realized that her son was going to Troy, and Thetis had removed Achilles from his vow. Well, Achilles had headed back to the palace, and there was a wonderful happy resolution. Uh, Achilles, Ajax, and, and Odysseus, the three happy male warriors, had, had, had said goodbye to the king of, of Skyros. They'd said goodbye to the, to the three princess daughters. And then the happy band of three warriors had, had headed down to the harbor, hopped onto a boat, and, and set sail for the glorious fleet that was waiting for them at Aulis. And halfway back towards it, uh, Achilles, enthusiastic, this was the stage you've been waiting for, had, had turned to Odysseus and, and said, Odysseus, you know, I, I know my destiny awaits in Troy. Somehow I, I think that, that, that Troy, Troy Odysseus is going to change everything for me. And Odysseus, a, a much older, wiser, and more wily but jaded warrior than Achilles would ever be, had said, yes, I'm sure your destiny does await you at Troy, Achilles, and no doubt Troy will change everything for you. And, well, it certainly was going to. Just a little postscript to the story, folks. Um, life returned quietly into normal on the island of Skyros, and old king uh, Lycomedes uh, returned to doting on his three teenage daughters. The adventure was over, and life settled down into quiet routine, and uh, until some months later, when it turned out that the eldest of King Lycomedes' daughters um, announced rather awkwardly to her father that, well, somehow she was pregnant and expecting a child. Four weeks later, the uh, second of the daughters had gone to her father and reported the very same piece of information. Uh, poor King Lycotomies, he, he, he never could figure it out. Uh, his daughters had been sequestered in the ladies' quarters all their lives, and he had certainly never let any men in, so he reasoned it must be some miracle from the gods. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is likely a wonderful little place to leave the episode titled Finding Achilles. So a couple of options are open to you at this point, and uh, you get to choose as you always do. If you're just in Trojan War, the podcast, for the sheer pleasure of this story alone, then in a few moments you can gracefully say your goodbyes and keep a very close eye on the website, trojanwarpodcast.com, and someday very soon, the next episode in the ongoing saga of the Trojan War epic will be available to you. And I, I promise you that the episode to follow will not be nearly as light and fluffy and candy floss and fun in tone as this particular past episode has been. So that's one option for you. On the other hand, if you feel like hanging around for the post-story commentary, I'm going to have an awful lot of fun walking through some of the really interesting things about this Achilles and Skyros episode and, and, and talk to you about this bizarre moment in European history when Achilles at Skyros became the most exciting and obsessive story from the entire Trojan War epic that, that the Europeans were telling each other. So, so you can either stick around or uh, you can say goodbye and wait for the next element in the story to continue with the next podcast. So this is a point where I'm going to quiet for a few moments and those of you leaving can gracefully say your goodbyes. So this story of, of Achilles at Skyros is, is really, really interesting. It, it's old. Uh, it, it's old enough that Homer knew of this particular episode when, 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 when Homer was developing the Iliad in about 700 BCE. Uh, in one of the books of the Iliad, I think it's book 19, Achilles 
Achilles actually turns around and makes passing reference to his time in the island of Skyros and, and indeed actually acknowledges that he, ha- that he has a son there, uh, a son named Neopatolinus. And, and Achilles hopes that, that his son is being well raised and looked after on the island. Well, Achilles himself is actually, is actually on the beaches of Troy. And so Homer knew about the story and, and Homer obviously doesn't spend any more time talking about the Skyros expedition because it's, it, it's not part of what Homer is interested in doing. We then know that the Greek playwright Euripides, um, in the 5th century BC, apparently wrote an entire play on the story, but that play has been lost from history. So all we have is references to the play in the works of other writers. But but then the Skyros story and this sort of little candy floss diversion of, of Achilles' fun time in the island kind of vanishes from the popular consciousness. Uh, um, it doesn't show up again as as a subject fit for art or, or theater or music for centuries and centuries and centuries. And, and, and then bizarrely, and, and for reasons which I still find kind of really inexplicable, sometime in the early 18th century, suddenly Europe discovered this story that I just told you, the story of, of, of Achilles' time in the island of Skyros. And, and 18th century Europe went completely nuts over this particular episode of the Trojan War epic. And, and of course, the form that of theater that the most popular and the most celebrated, uh, that the most artists were making the most money on during, during the 18th century was opera. And, and, and this was a boggling fact when I went to do my research. But during the years between 1700 and 1800 alone, over, get this, 27 different full-length operas were produced all on the theme of Achilles on the island of Skyros. Now, these weren't variations on a theme. These were independent full productions with their own musical scores, their own unique librettos, their own traveling casts, their own special effects. And, and these operas toured the opera houses of Europe to resounding effect. It was the most popular subject for opera for 100 years of European cultural history. And I find it kind of amazing because... I absolutely adore telling the story of Achilles in the island of Skyros, but one of the reasons I adore telling this story is it's because it's, it's, it's such a light diversion from some of the heavier stories inside of the epic, and it's, it's just so much fun to tell. And, and so I got thinking, why is it that the Europeans like this story? And well, we know that, we know that the culture of this particular time period, if we look at the music and the art that was coming out of, out of this early Enlightenment age, tended to have a, an element of, of, of whimsical, Baroque or rococo fun to it. These these people liked diversions, and and their operas tended to to be rich in comic diversion. And and so if you start to actually look at this story, well, if I had to create a libretto and a story for an opera, I think I would actually choose Achilles on the Island of Skyros as my subject. If I wanted to fill the com the opera houses of Europe and and North America with with people laughing their eyes out and and, and just enjoying the sheer pleasure of the story. And if you think about it. This this story has it all for an opera. You've got you've got this amazing lead character. You can choose your your best male opera singer, and he can of course play the role of Achilles, and and he can he can do Achilles as the warrior. So there can be scenes in the opera where he's dressed up in full bronze armor, and he's the alpha male, the greatest warrior ever. Uh, but then there can be the other scenes where where Achilles is in disguise as a woman, and and this of course would give the opera company my opera company great great freedom because I could actually use a female in in this role. I could I could actually have cast two Achilles, a, a male opera singer Achilles, and a female 
male opera singer Achilles. And, and so when Achilles is in the ladies' quarters and disguised as a girl, I could have the female coming in and singing the bits of, I am the eldest son, and though I'm more butch than the rest, I really am a girl, trust me on this, that kind of thing. And, and, and so you could have a great deal of fun. And, and of course, the beauty of this is that audiences everywhere love stories of sexual confusion and, and, and cross-dressing has always been a, a popular theme inside of comedy. So, so the possibilities are really, really rich. The next thing, of course, that I, I could add to this opera, and I think was, if you look at the scores of the operas of the 18th century, and I took the time to look at a few of them, the next thing you could add, of course, is an element of a romance. Now, My Achilles at Skyros story contains no romance. Uh, My Achilles, uh, the ancient records tell us that he managed to father a couple of kids, but they don't explain how it happened. They certainly don't flesh out uh, the romance. It's just a couple of girls end up pregnant after Achilles leaves. Surprise, surprise. But but if but in the 18th century, the romance element was really popular and, and, and all the makings of it were there because you had a princess, the eldest princess always plays this role inside of the operas. And that means you can have a beautiful female opera singer who's young and attractive and and, and she can she can fall in love with this mysterious new woman who has, who has entered the ladies' quarters. And that can lead some, some, to some wonderful librettos. You can, you can have her singing about, somehow I find you attractive, you know, but I'm a girl and you're a girl. And well, maybe you can't do that because it's a little bit too 21st century as an opera. But the sexual confusion could certainly be played up and, and audiences have a great time with it as, as a female lead of the real female princesses dealt with the fact that there was now this strange princess in the room that unnaturally she found herself attracted to and of course that would allow the Achilles character either played by a boy or a girl in this particular scene to to find himself sexually attracted to this oldest princess but realize that he had to stay in disguise and that, and that could lead to more wonderful wonderful scenes and eventually you could have some sort of a, a bower or a courtyard or, or or a forest scene where where Achilles disguised as a woman decides that now is the time I have to reveal that I'm a man and and and, and reveal my full manhood to well, maybe that's not the best way of putting it but it depends on the your staging, uh, reveal my male identity uh, to the princess at the same time as the princess is going, in spite of the fact that you're a woman, I, I love you, and there could be a wonderful back and forth little singing piece. And, and then, well, once the two of them realize that they were boy and girl and they were in love, the, the scene could be consummated with with their revealing as much of, well, as much as the librettist wanted to actually reveal inside of that scene. And of course, then you have all the other cool things you could do with it. You, you've got the doddering old king, the, the king who could be played for comic effect. He, he's the king who recognizes that there's something sketchy happening inside of the ladies' quarters, and he can't quite put his finger on it. And of course, as, as Achilles and the lead female princess after they've consummated the romance and they want to continue to fulfill it inside of the ladies' quarters, well, well, you could have the wonderful comic scenes with the old king running around trying to catch them in the act, and it would turn it into absolutely perfect, wonderful, delightful bedroom farce. And, and, and this stuff is popular. I mean, Shakespeare made a living in his comedies doing this kind of thing. All of Shakespeare's comedies are based on, on cross-dressing, sexual confusion and identity, boys dressed as girls dressed as boys, and, and girls dressed as boys dressed as girls, and all of that kind of thing. And, and you find it in all of the plays, and, and people love this kind of thing. So these operas contain it too, and you could have a wonderful time with this. And, and then there'd be other special effects you could add. You Imagine what you could do with Thetis, a genuine sea goddess. You could, you could have a rising up from, from the little trapdoor hell under the, the stage in the opera company, and, and, and she she could be rising up with smoke and, and maybe it would, you could make it look as though she was coming out of the Mediterranean itself and, and then Thetis could do one of two numbers. She could likely early in the opera, she could have a beautiful poignant number where she talked about her, her, her fears for her son Achilles and how she loved him and, and recount the whole story of the River Styx. And, and then later in the opera, of course, she could be this, the fiery 
terrifying goddess who was scaring the crap out of King Lycomedes and, and saying, you will look after my Achilles and invoking every god onto her side. So, so there'd be wonderful, wonderful opportunities there. And then, then there'd be the other comic effects, two other princesses who also wanted Achilles. So two other kid sister daughters in minor roles running in the palace, trying to woo him along with the big sister that actually gets him. And, and then you could add some minor male characters and some, some military elements. You could have you could have Ajax arriving in full battle armor, and and then you could do all the class confusion stuff, which is wonderful, of course, inside of the operas and the comedies, and of course, again, Shakespeare's stock and trade. You could you could have the great warlord noble king Odysseus described as a humble beggar, and that could be played for comic effect, and and then the great reveal scene when everybody goes, oh my gosh, he wasn't a humble beggar, he was actually a warlord, and 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 so the opera has all the makings for a wonderful, light, hearty entertainment. And it's likely why, as I said, there were over 30 of them developed inside of this 100-year time period. And of course, as all operas, it would have to end, as all comic plays do, with, with, with a resolution and a restoration of the proper order in the universe. So the boys would have to get back into armor. The girls would have to get back into dresses. Uh, the wealthy nobility would have to get back onto their thrones. And the poor peasants would have to get back down into the dirt where they belonged. And, and, and order would be restored to the universe. And, and then in a final number, if you were playing this opera as a bromance, then you could have a male number with uh, the three male leads, uh, the three tenors, if you will, Achilles, Odysseus, and, and Ajax singing some glorious song about we are off to Troy in battle, or if you wanted to play it more for the romance end, then you could have the poor princess saying, when will I see you again? Will you ever come home from Troy? Oh, oh, oh. And so the possibilities for the opera are endless. And I think that's likely why in the Enlightenment, the opera was such a smashing success. And I know here's the weird thing. I've looked, I, I've scoured everywhere, and, and following well, the earliest years of the 19th century, but not much past about 1825, I cannot find a single serious artistic work in any genre, theater, opera, music, art, which makes any reference whatsoever to the Achilles at Skyros story. After its 100 to 115 years on the world stage where everybody was obsessed by it, the episode has vanished. And and I think that tells us something very interesting about the about the Trojan War epic and the incredibly malleable clay that, that, that this epic is. It's, it's that every generation has been able to take from the Trojan War epic the stories, the interests, and the concerns of their particular time and space and culture and, and, and find inside of the Trojan War epic what they need to produce art. So if you go to the classical period, the classical Greek period of, of 500, 400, 300 BC, you're, you'll notice that inside of this Greek period, the playwrights ruled the stage inside of the artistic community. And, and, and the plays, if you look at the lion's share of the plays from that period that focus on the Trojan War epic, and there were literally in the tens and twenties and thirties of plays we still have, plus the hundreds that we likely lost. Well, with almost with very few exceptions, these plays deal almost exclusively with the violent, tragic, horrific events inside of the Trojan War epic. They deal with murder, sacrifice, death, betrayal, suicide, uh, all kinds of good stuff coming up in future episodes of the podcast, but I can't say any more without violating my spoiler alert rule. But but this is what the Greeks were obsessed with. So so they weren't that concerned about Achilles on Skyros. They, they likely thought it was irrelevant candy floss of no theatrical value at all. And, and, and then if you look at our own century, the 
the, the, the 20th century, in the early 21st century, when we go mining the Trojan War epic for our artistic gold, it, it's interesting what we do with it. And and if you look at the major works inside of the 20th century that focus on on the Trojan War epic, it, well, the serious artistic ones, aside from the, the blockbuster movies like Troy, which are just in it for the popcorn and the big bucks and, and the sheer pleasure of the entertainment, but, but the artists who have really gone to work on this, well, they seem to be focusing and obsessing primarily on the message that they derive from this malleable clay of the Trojan War epic is, is, is on the horrors and the terrors of war. And, and maybe that's because the 20th century had two rather quite spectacular ones. And, and so when they read the work and when they, when, when they look at the epic, when they look at Homer's section of the epic, the, the, the Iliad, they, they mine that for, for stories of the horrors of war and particularly, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, uh, the, the stories of, of the horrors of war as they particularly pertain to women. So it's interesting. It's, it's, the point I'm trying to make is the same point I tried to make back when I was talking about Helen of Troy and, and, and the big question about why Helen left Sparta to go to Troy and, and how Helen's leaving with Paris was very, very malleable clay and every culture could put onto their culture the Helen that they needed. She was abducted. She ran away. She, she emancipated herself, uh, whatever. Well, the same thing happens actually with all the stories inside of this Trojan War epic cycle. You can, you can take the story and you can put the spin and the interest onto it that your culture needs or that your culture decides, decides is important or that resonates with your particular culture and moment in time and, and tell the stories you need. So that's likely enough of a lecture for now. I, I'd encourage you if you want a little bit of fun. You, you can actually go to iTunes and, and, and find copies of, of these operas. They're, they're still recorded. Uh, the, one of the more interesting and famous ones is by Handel, uh, uh, the, the guy that gave us uh, the, the Messiah, you know, the guy that gave us a, the iconic Hallelujah Chorus. He has an entire opera dedicated to Achilles on Skyros. And you can go and you can, you can upload it from iTunes and listen in yourself. It's an awful lot of fun if, if you, if you like that sort of thing. And, and, at that point, I think I'm going to say goodbye. Um, I'll be seeing you for the next episode of Trojan War, the podcast. And if you go to my if you go to my website, trojanwarpodcast.com, uh, the next episode will be up and posted any day soon. And the only clue I'll give you is that, well, there are operas written about the episode I'll be telling you next, but they're certainly not comic operas. So have yourselves a great day.